0: Sell 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 sell! Bye bye bye!
1: From the AMFM 24-7 Radio Network, broadcasting from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration Award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach.
2: Hello, welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It is October 23rd. A wonderful Monday. We're going to make it wonderful, right? We have that choice each and every day. When we wake up, we can decide if it's going to be a good day or not. Bad things may happen along the way, but it's our mental decision that determines everything. I've decided that this is an amazing show. You're going to agree with me. First up, we have one of the top hoteliers in the world. If not the top hotelier in the world, he has won every award. Deepak Ori is with us again. I'm very excited to welcome him back. And then after that, we have Luis Baez. He is an amazing salesperson. Not only does he have like the greatest voice of all time, perhaps he just, his voice is pretty impressive. He is an incredible salesperson and has had huge success at some of the biggest organizations, uh, in the world. And I'm excited for you to learn his process and, uh, learn how he can teach us to sell better it's a great stuff anyway very excited that you were with us two fantastic guests and we're going to get started in just a second
1: the school for startups radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments or if you need help with your business at any stage from concepts to exit Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the show.
2: We are back again. Thank you so very much for being with us today. I'm very excited and honored to have a repeat guest. Deepak Ori is with us. He was... With us back in January, promoting his book, which we had an amazing conversation about what the word to means. The book is a bridge, not too far, an interesting twist there. And we talked about how, because of that word, not to those two words. You can really learn that you can achieve anything, that no bridge is too far. It was an amazing conversation. The book is now five-star rated with almost 90 five-star reviews on that Amazon place and is still selling very well. He has also been, in addition to a successful author, he was the CEO and founder of Libua Hotels, one of the most recognized hotel brands in the world. He has won all sorts of awards and now is very active in teaching and giving back. He is giving uh, lectures all around at places like Harvard and things like that. He has recently left Libua and we will be talking about his future. Ipak, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you back.
1: Thank you, Jim. Thank you for a very nice introduction, as always. Really appreciate it. And I'm so excited to be back. Tell us what's up in your life. I think life is full of challenges, and uh, I divide my life in three parts. One is karma, one is fate, and the third is destiny. And uh, when I ask people what is the difference, uh, they they always wonder. The difference is karma is a past and fate and destiny is the future and fate can be described by science and by religion by religion fate is decided by the god by science manifestation of your ideas and you repeat that to yourself creates your fate and then you plan your destiny and that's what i'm doing so if you remember uh when i wrote my book and i said the bridge not too far and you said what is when is your bridge and I did mention last year to you that the bridge is coming very close. And this is what that bridge is because all my life I have created brands and uh, I just want to create something. You know, you always leave the best for the, being, uh, the last. So this is the last leg of my journey, which has to be the best part. And I want to create a brand where there's a niche in the United States. And why U.S.? Because U.S. is an equal opportunity. Uh, employer or a a land which gives chances to people. Uh, Everything is very transparent and that's why I chose US. Uh, And also the other reason I chose US, the world is talking about luxury spending in Asia, China, India, but it's very far from the American consumer. The level of maturity the US consumer has, uh, the level of understanding the US consumer has, and the level of exposure the us consumer has uh, i want to be there with them because it will not be easy and when it is not easy you will find deeper there
2: so i want to make sure you're launching a new luxury brand in the united states hotel brand
1: is that yes, correct true. yes it's very true
2: and do we know the name yet
1: you will know that very soon. So so uh, everything uh, you will know very soon, but it will be in U.S. And the uh, reason we have chosen a region where we are going to, we are looking targeting a four-figure average room rate, uh, 12 months a year. And uh, we have very carefully chosen this area. And uh, why we have chosen this area and why we have chosen U.S.A. is That is where the brand will start. It will also go to the other parts of the world. It's not only will be only U.S. brand, but it will be a U.S. brand which will be going to a different part of the world, and there's a gap. And there's a gap, and that's why a bridge not too far, because this bridge will cover that gap, and I will walk so as the customers will walk over that bridge. So so that's where the opportunity lies with this new brand.
2: And I remember... Libu was based on simplicity, I think you said. What is the luxury of the new brand?
1: See, uh, the few fundamentals never change in life. Men always walk on two legs, and that is a fundamental that will never change, whether it is Asia or US. That is how men walk. So, simplicity is the most difficult thing to do in a luxury. And yes, it will have a simplicity. But uh, what is going to be added with that simplicity would be an elegance. Uh, uh, What will be added with that simplicity, with elegance, will be a style. And there will be a small swoosh,
0: like like a
1: painter. That will be my touch that will be added to this brand.
2: Where are you going to start? New York?
1: No, it's not going to be New York and uh, it will uh, i think we will not be hitting new york at all just to let you know but yes it will be in u.s you'll hear about it very soon jim
2: okay well i will i follow that space i love clicking off the hotels that i visited around the world it's yeah. one of the things i enjoy
1: where does excellence come from Excellence comes from uh, understanding the customers and also understanding as an organization or as a person who you are. So, so, so this is how it works, uh, Jim. There a lot of companies, they put a lot of money, a lot of efforts uh, in understanding the customer, but still they fail. And do you know why? No, why? Because they never understood themselves. They never understood themselves as a leader. They never understood themselves as an organization. So, so, so that is why the failure happened. So, and this is why I was teaching. So this whole thing was a plan, two years. I was teaching, understood, did the executive MBA classes, MBA courses, trying to understand how people think, how consumer thinks, what they're doing. And I reflected upon myself while writing the book. And uh, whatever I'll say, I learned a lot myself also while writing the book, because there are many things about me, which I forgot. And when you spend two, uh, uh, two years writing and reflecting upon your journey and upon yourself, and that is where you realize that uh, how well you understand yourself. So I think I've been able to understand the consumer in the U.S. I've been able to understand myself. Now I just have to put that understanding into a concept and be there in the U.S. very soon with all of you.
2: So if someone who's willing to pay on average 12 months a year, $1,000 a night for a room, and I assume that's a room with a bad view, a, b- a view of the parking lot, what does that customer want the most?
1: I think uh, most of us never look at the view.
2: That's true. You look at it once. You walk in the room, you open the window and look at it once.
1: and then that's the Okay, so, time. so a simple question is, why do someone check into a hotel, which is a resort destination and not a city hotel? They're, they're going for their holidays. They're going to enjoy, they're going to want to have a great time. So what is it they're looking for? They're looking for convenience. They're looking for privacy. They're looking for that, you know what, I want to have a minimum issues while asking for certain things. And when you do $1,000 average check uh, or average room rate, uh, you don't want customers to ask for anything at all. You're, You're providing him anything before he even asks you. You have uh, just to give you an example. You stay in a hotel; it's a very small thing. And I'll give you two examples, here. How many hotels you would have seen where all the three brands, all the three uh, verticals of the Dyson uh, hair dryers are there for the woman—the one that dries their hair, the one that curls everything—that's a pure luxury. And how much it costs? Is it two hundred dollars a Dyson? $400 more, but not anyone is doing that, okay? The second thing is, how much effort does it take that when the customer is out, engineering, housekeeping, everybody goes and check everything in the room. Is that working? Most of the time, we are calling and say that our bulb is not working or the air condition is not working. So, so, so these are the things uh, that goes behind the scene, and that is what the customer is looking for, that you know what, I stayed for five days, and... I just didn't have to ask for anything except to order my food and order my wine and uh, do some uh, experiences. I didn't have to ask anything. So, 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 so creating experiences, creating something for the customer that they remember forever is what uh, a, a $1,000 average room rate hotel is. And we won't be the only one. There are many still that is existing and we all have to learn from them.
2: What's your favorite brand outside of Labua? What, what do you think is the best?
1: I think I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of hotels. So, uh, so I'm a big fan of Montage at Laguna. I'm a big fan of Inet Meadowwoods. I'm a big fan of Aubergh. uh I'm a big fan of a, a Royal Hotel in the Champagne area. Uh, I'm also a big fan of say, uh, what else? Uh, I mean, I'm just giving you the resort locations. I'm also a big fan of Little Washington, which is, uh, 90 minutes out of DC, uh, towards Virginia. So, so these, these, these are the great brands that I'm, I'm a big fan of. So it's never a one thing. And if you have to ask me that name, one brand that I would like to copy, it won't be a hotel that is a men's clothing brand, House of Bijan. That is uh, where I would go from.
2: Interesting. What's so special about that
1: brand? So let me tell you what is so special about that brand. It's on a rodeo drive. 90% of the people who walk on the rodeo drive, they look at the facade and they say this is a great art gallery. Actually, ninety percent is uh, not the right thing. I think ninety-eight percent people say that. There is a great art gallery, and it is by invitation. Only two percent people know it's a men's clothing store. Okay, interesting. And would you want to hide
2: your hotel like that?
1: I'm not going to hide. They have, and they are also not hiding. They are putting the name. We are also going to put the name, but our facades. Or everything is not going to tell people that it's a hotel or it's a restaurant. Because when people are going to say that this is this, it's going to look like a very elegant place, it's going to look like a very private place, but it'll be very, very different. Just imagine, just imagine that you're walking into a restaurant and you're walking through a garden where all the vegetables are, all the herbs are picked up, and they're cooking the food for you. How would you feel?
2: What are your thoughts on Airbnb, VRBO, and how that affects the hotel industry?
1: I think uh, uh, they don't affect. They complement, actually. Uh, Normally, when I go for an extended stay, I use VRBO. Uh, I've never used Airbnb, but they both are very good. Uh, I would say... uh, They are complementing the hospitality industry because you cannot cater to everyone in hospitality. So they are looking at a different verticals, extended stay, where people can stay, something like that. So this is something we will never be able to copy and we don't want to copy because in a business, the most important thing is the ability to say no. And uh, also uh, an ability to say that let's all of us grow together and we share it. So you can't be everyone. So 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 I think they take their place, uh, Airbnb and VRBO, and the hotels take their place. And uh, uh, they're not affecting the hospitality industry at all. They will not be able to give you that kind of experience what a hotel would give you. Okay, because sometimes when you take view you never meet the landlord, you never get to meet the person who's there. They tell you the code, you use that code, you enter the house, you leave the things and you never meet anyone in your own place. And when people are staying in the hotel, they are looking for an emotional connect. They're looking for an experience. They're looking for someone to tell them the stories, someone to guide them through, someone to explain why it is important. So it's a very different aspect of customers who are looking at uh, Airbnb, VRBO, or all those who are looking for photos like that. Uh, so, so it's altogether a very different kind of experience.
2: With the new brand, how will you go about marketing and letting the whole world know that there's a new luxury brand? Do you focus on a particular group of uh, travel agents? What, are, what will the marketing plan look like?
1: You know, Jen, I don't do marketing, and that is one area I have to learn. I only teach marketing, so there will be no marketing of the hotel. The, the marketing would be outsourced to all our customers. They'll market our product. I it's exactly that. like Hermes. They, they don't have a marketing department, so there are two departments we are not going to have, which will be outsourced to our customers, marketing and training.
2: And training?
1: Yeah. Training of our employees. Because there's no one person who can train. We, we, we constantly learn. We, we, I, you will hear in a new brand that I'm developing that we will not say that we have well-trained staff. We will all say that we are learning every day and we are evolving because that's how we learn from our customers because the world is changing very fast. You know, when this brand will come uh, two or three other brands will send their people to learn from us. Once we open, maybe a year later, somebody else will open and we have to learn from them. So this is how the industry grows.
2: I like that. That's a great way of thinking about it. What about the money to start? Is it coming out of the same family in Thailand?
1: No, no, no. It's a different set of investors. Why? So why? Because uh, the area is different, and when the area is different, the geography is different. We need an investor who understands the area. We don't need an investor. We don't need money actually. To be honest, we need the money which stays with us for minimum ten years, and there's a lot of understanding. And the person brings along with the money a financial discipline also, and who understand the areas we are going to, and we are going into a different area. So we're choosing the investor who understands that. So that's the reason. How do
2: you come up with the name and the color scheme and the fonts and those parts of the brand, the the visuals? the pictures you're going to choose, the color of the website. How, do, how does that part of the brand come to you?
1: Uh, I think colors and everything uh, will be chosen, not by me, it will be chosen by the interior designer. And uh, it will be very different in different locations. It's not going to be the same product going everywhere. And also how the patents and everything will be there, it will be chosen by the architect. So we'll give the brief that this is what we want and we, we want a little bit of a difference, but we want the little bit of the local elements added to that because that's why people are coming there. Uh, so, so so that is something uh, I'm not an expert. I would love to tell you that, yes, I'm an expert and I'm going to decide everything. But, you know, in hospitality, one good thing is you should know your strength. My strength is coming up with a concept and then I work with different set of people. Uh, Money is an investor. He brings the financial discipline. Architect will be there. Interior designer would be there. I can just tell you one thing. The architect we are using, named with health, uh, that firm is uh, out of uh, everywhere in the world. Been there for 100 years. And this will be the smallest project they will be ever doing in their life. But they want to do it because that is where they can show their creativity.
2: Architects love small projects. You know, I went to architecture school, Deepak, and had to, I actually was, uh, I don't know, six months away from getting my master's and had to drop out because my business, my first business, was doing so well. That I couldn't do both. How do you get your concepts? You say that your specialty is coming up with the concept. Does that happen by a process or does it come to you in the middle of the night or while you're going out for a run or while you're shaving? Where does your creativity explode from? When?
1: So my creativity and my dreams, the, the difference between me and other people is when they breathe, they're sleeping. And my dreams don't allow me to sleep. That's where the difference comes in, okay. And how does the creative creativity comes in? I think uh, I trained my brain uh, in correlation. I can correlate things very well. I can correlate car to a hotel room. I can go co- I can watch certain things in a movie and correlate to a service sequence. So, so I've been this. This whole thing is a training. So over a period of. Years I trained my mind to pick up the best and able to correlate that and put into a concept. So, so that's 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 how I do that.
0: And I'm able to understand
1: that I'm able to do it. So last night I was at a dinner with someone, and uh, we were talking about tequila, and the person asked me, "Oh, tequila has become." I said, "Tequila has become the new champagne." He said, "Why?" Very few people know that how suddenly tequila from taking shots has become tequila, taking in a very nice highball glass or a whiskey glass with a big cube of ice. All that has come from Netflix narcos and series like that. So, so people like to hold that and, and show their power. So the whole thing is in your, brain in an unconscious mind so how you're able to relate to your unconscious mind is where the creativity comes in and you have to train yourself and there's a lot of pain because it doesn't come middle of the night because uh, I just don't get to sleep because I keep on thinking and uh, creativity and happiness both requires endurance of pain so one the only one caution is you should know your breaking point So one should not break.
2: Have you ever come close to your breaking point? It doesn't seem like you
1: have. I think... uh, Have you ever had a failure? I have a lot of failures, but I don't consider those as failures. I have a... uh, This is what I teach, you know. Uh, My failures are... uh, In my book, I've written the failures because I forgot to apply my principles. And that's where I fail. But uh, something which you are not successful at, that's one way of not doing that thing. That's how Thomas Edison has put it. Because you know, the definition of success is wrong. And automatically most of us have a wrong definition of failure. Failure is not that you tried something and it didn't work, and people give it away. So so that should not be the part. And if you read you definitely have read my book, I do talk about uh, fear of people's opinion. I do tell people that the most expensive real estate in the world is a graveyard, because people never use their ideas, and that's where the most expensive natural intelligence is buried So, 400 million kids in India, and you grew
2: up in extreme poverty. I remember talking about how a cold soda was one of the most exciting things. And a bathroom without a line, right? Uh, you grew up like the movie, the Slumdog movie. So the odds of becoming the success that you are are astronomical. What's the one or two things that made that happen, Depak? Is it words from your father? Or are you Thomas Edison- Einstein smart? I see you have great hair. Is it because of your hair and how good looking you are? What's the super secret?
1: I think uh, ability to dream. That's one. So if you go to my website, which is Deepakori.com, it says, let's just dream. So why I put let's just dream? Because uh, I don't want to be selfish. I want everyone to dream. And uh, the ability to dream has got me until here. Uh, Yes, my father gave me the principles, but at the same time, dreams are very important. And the turning point of my life was that cold soda. That desire of having that soda again has made me come here. And uh, you know one like Coca Cola
2: or a Pepsi or another brand? Uh,
1: that was a Coca Cola. Thank God. <laughs> so, so, but, but, anyway. So, the the point here is, uh, Jim. Uh, you know, when you reach in the area where I have reached, where do you come from? Doesn't count anymore because now you're competing at the top. So, so, where you come from should be used as a fuel as an energy to move forward and never to give up. So, so that, that's the most important point. And that's what I would like to share that with the viewers because, you know, even me, I'm a human being at the end of the day. So people would think, oh, he's the strongest. Sometimes I also think that what I'm doing is right or wrong. Uh, but I have always done two things in my life. I have done the storytelling and story-living part. And I'm reliving the story-living part now. I can just say that. Because uh, in a world of social media, you don't know who to believe and what to believe. Because everyone puts their life in a very colorful, uh, I would say, slides. So it's very difficult to differentiate who's real and who's not real. So, so the only way I would say is that uh, uh, I have created brands, and my brands are uh, story living, not the storytelling part. So that's very important. So the only way we can differentiate uh, when people put their life in colorful slides, is how many of them are living their stories.
2: How do you take these lessons and teach them to your children who grow up, will grow up in considerable luxury?
1: Oh, sorry, you have to say that again. I missed that. Please how please. are you
2: going to pass these lessons on to your children?
1: Oh, I have no kids, but, uh, there are a lot of kids I teach. And I teach them, and that's where I pass the lessons. Uh, Because uh, the idea is that we all should be living in a a very educated world. And I have a very different take on education, Jim. If education was such a great thing, and I do believe in education and I teach, the banks won't go bankrupt, countries won't go to the war. So so the idea is, uh, 2000 years back, Aristotle said the biggest virtue in life is pronesis is a latin word p-h-r-o-n-e-s-i-s and the meaning of pronesis is practical wisdom and that's how I have introduced the experiential part of education and the experiential part of education correlates with what I said is story living part so so I have taken the education from storytelling like teaching also to a living part uh, by adding a practical wisdom
2: to that. The book is A Bridge Not Too Far Where Creativity Meets Innovation. The website is Deepak Ori, D-E-E-P-A-K and Ori is O-H-R-I O-H-R-I dot com Deepak Ori dot com five star rated on the Amazon place. Deepak, what's your final word for us today?
1: Final word to everyone is start dreaming if you're not dreaming and let's just dream together and make this world a better world.
2: I love it. Fantastic. Deepak, thank you so much for being with
1: us. And I can't wait to see
2: all about the new brand.
1: Thank you, Jane. Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. I Have a great so. day. Thank you, Jim.
2: And we will be right back. <laughs>
1: Well, that's a, that's a that's a wonderful question actually. Oh my gosh, I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's that's awesome.
0: that's a great one. You know that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question and and I don't have a great answer. That's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for startups Radio.
2: Welcome back again. Thank you so very much for being with us today. As I said, I am very excited for some great guests. First up today, we're going to talk about selling. Imagine working at the biggest companies that you could think of. What about Google, Uber, LinkedIn, and Tesla? Is that like the biggest, coolest list of companies you've ever heard of? Imagine one person being in sales at all of them. Wow. Fantastic. Luis Baez is the name. He is our next guest. He is a selling genius. He has a company now dedicated to helping others become good at sales. Hopefully they can learn a little bit from him. He is also global director of revenue enablement at Deputy, which is a SaaS workplace management product.
0: Luis, welcome. How are you doing? I am fantastic, my friend. Thank you so much for having me today. What is your secret sauce? My secret sauce, gosh, um, nothing is, it might be difficult, but it's not impossible. And I always strive for progress over perfection. Like I, I think that perfection can cripple us, whereas we can always learn as long as we're in constant motion.
2: All right, but how did that help you sell so well for the biggest list of tech companies ever on Silicon <laughs> Paperhead? <laughs>
0: Well, listen, there was no sales major in college. There was no magic sales book that taught me this. I had to learn on the fly, build the plane as I was flying it. And I um, was someone that was just determined and I had nothing to lose because I grew up in poverty and this was my shot to shine. I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And so that was really what drove my career in sales was the adrenaline rush of the, the immense opportunity ahead.
2: That's interesting and a great outlook. Do you, I don't know if a better word, do you have a chip or something to prove now because of that, because of the way you grew up? Does it motivate you in a Um, counterintuitive way?
0: You know, I think that I, it certainly helps me to maintain perspective and I practice a higher degree of gratitude now than I used to, right? And I think that that's really what keeps me anchored is knowing that I know what the opposite of my current lived experience looks like and and it feels like, and I understand that desperation. And so, yeah, it's certainly, it's not a chip on my shoulder so much as like, I don't want to go back to not uh, feeling comfortable and safe.
2: Right. Well, that certainly makes sense. When did you realize you were great at sales? Because you're an introvert, aren't you? Didn't I read somewhere that you, you claim you claim to be an introvert?
0: I sure am. I sure am. I am someone that while I enjoy speaking on stages and I enjoy working with you know teams on bigger projects and events, um, I do get exhausted from those scenes. I need to recharge often. I do my best thinking when I'm alone and quiet, especially 30,000 feet in the air sitting uh, right by the plane uh, window. That's when I do my best thinking. Um, but I am someone that because I have a different approach in sales, because I'm not cookie cutters, or I'm not what you would expect in terms of being high pressure or sleazy or trying to squeeze you into a corner uh, because my approach instead is to sit with you and empathize and understand what it is that your day-to-day looks like and how it is that I can help. Um, I think that that approach um, is really what's taking my customers and my clients off guard. Um, and that's been really my secret sauce in my approach.
2: And do you think that your Family, the people who have been around you since you were a young, introverted five year old, are they shocked now that you're in sales?
0: Yeah, I think that everyone expected that I'd end up being a creative a dancer yeah. or a photographer or something, or even a writer. I love to write. I, I'm a bookworm. I'm, I read like a book a week on average. Um, but yeah, no, everyone is kind of surprised that I went down this path, myself included. But, you know, I am an out gay man and working in tech has been really uh, the safest industry that I've ever stepped into. Prior to working in tech, I did work in law and it, uh, even interned on Wall Street and things and um, i found safer environments to be productive and to thrive within the tech industry
2: is that because the people you know, the or- tech in-
0: The tech industry is just more progressive. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, the tech industry is far more progressive than some of the other industries that I had been working in prior. And um, there was also a commitment because these global companies had so much influence over so many markets and the way that so many, and billions of people interacted, um, there became a real sort of uh, critical mass around uh, diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging, um, not only for the sake of creating safe environments, but making sure that product design, takes into account uh, being inclusive and accessible for everyone. And so I worked in environments that valued that, um, whether it was because of a moral drive or whether it was driven by profit. And so it led to opportunities to be part of companies that had resources like employee resource groups for women, for queer people, for black people that were executive sponsored and resourced to allow people the visibility, the leadership development, and the kinds of investments to make sure that, you know, the, the, the leadership and everyone across the team represented the user bases of the, the products that we were selling.
2: Well, I'm glad you found that support and a place that you felt uh, appreciated. Yeah. Do you think it's only the tech industry? Do you think that the medical industry or the trucking industry or the football <laughs> industry would be I any different? Or it has I mean, I, I agree with you. I think tech probably came first, off. but yeah, maybe I now the rest of us have caught up too.
0: I certainly hope so. I see progress across different industries. I see people blazing trails. I see a greater level of visibility and interest and investment in making sure that these spaces are equitable and safe for people. Um, and, you know, I don't think that, that we are far off from where we need to be or could be. Um, and certainly there is a lot that we could borrow from industries like tech that have, you know, are, are already ahead in the conversation, borrowing from their playbooks, using their technologies, using their leadership methods and practices to create, you know, uh, you know, places that everyone can, can thrive in.
2: Well, I hope we get there. I've always thought that the coolest part of entrepreneurship is that it doesn't care. It doesn't (laughs) care who you sleep with. It doesn't care what color you are. It cares about whether you make money or not. And, you know, when I'm an entrepreneur, it's like, you know, keep the lights on. Okay, yeah. well, do you care if someone's a gay employee or the lights are on? You know, I, yeah. I don't care if they're gay. Keep the
0: lights on. You
2: know, it's <laughs> I just such a simple choice.
0: That. Yeah, I think that it, um, it when we think about entrepreneurship in particular, and we think about uh, the opportunity for founders to get investment and things like that, and we start to stack all the demographic data against that, uh, we do see some you know gaps, right? When we think about white founders versus black founders, male founders versus female founders, um, we do see that the funding isn't equitable, and so um, these things still matter. I think it's still important to have that lens and that consideration um, because yes we all want to keep the lights on but we all don't get a fair chance to get a light
2: well I certainly agree that in the past and I, I'm not going to argue that the data is not what the data is the minorities are getting funded less but on the show I have organizations all the time that are helping certain demographics and so mm-hmm. so many of the demographics are being helped aggressively that I feel good about that I I, you know, I acknowledge yeah. the past and I acknowledge we're still not perfect, but I yeah. am happy that there are so many organizations that are fighting on the behalf of so many different groups that need it. So
1: absolutely,
2: let's talk about selling, uh, can it be taught if an introvert like you can learn it, does that mean that anyone can be a good salesperson?
0: I don't think that anyone could. I think that you have to have an intrinsic desire to serve and to want to help and teach and coach people. Right. if that's not something that drives you, then you're not going to succeed. I think that, yes, there is, uh, people in sales are financially motivated, um, and they shouldn't be shy about that because you can work in any other function within the company. There's a reason you're in sales. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the things that will sustain you over the long term and through the rejections and disappointments and lost accounts, um, is really that drive to want to serve and to help others in some level. And, um, You know, I think that that's something that can be uh, nurtured. And I think that by adding some predictability and some structure to the way that you approach selling, I think it'll reduce the anxiety of stepping into that seat. I often connect with founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, and sales executives. Um, you know who will come up against you know the the anxieties of uh, connecting with people, presenting, doing discovery, asking the deeper questions, pushing customers, challenging customers. And I think that you can get to that level of advanced sort of nuances and tactics once you have a predictable sales process. And that's something that you can control. And that's certainly something that's helped me as, as an introvert, you know, really thrive.
2: All right. So how do you create a predictable sales process? What are the pieces of that look like?
0: Yeah, so first of all, you need to understand your customer and what they're expecting, right? And so I think uh, there are few businesses that really are good at interrupting the way that consumers buy. Um, I worked at Tesla, which completely changed the way that people bought vehicles. Um, but those kinds of examples are few and far between. Um, you know, if someone is going to be purchasing something that is high ticket or expensive, um, you know, and in terms of cost and and in terms of implementation, if you're selling software, for example, right, um, you want to be thinking about uh, the fact that that is going to require a high touch experience for the customer. Meaning, they're going to have questions. They're going to require you to be on deck to source information, to help scope exactly what it is that they need, Um, there's gonna be time that's gonna be invested in these kinds of sales when they're high ticket. And so you have to design a process for qualifying, making sure that you are uh, aware of all the influences in that deal, all the people that are going to be involved, all the processes that are going to be required and approvals that need to be met. Um, and then making sure that whatever solution you're offering fits just the size um, to make sure that of course you're meeting that expectation for that high ticket uh, item. Um, Something that is lower in costs would require less effort to sell um, because the the need for the high touch isn't there. Um, Generally, when you're selling something that has a higher ticket, there is greater anxiety because there is a perceived higher risk associated with a higher cost. And so understanding the buyer psychology, when you're selling something that's cheaper, you don't have to have as much skin in the game. Um, They're almost going to expect the solution or the sales process to be a little bit more turnkey, less high touch. And so that is an instance where you might rely on automations a little bit more in that sales process. And so, again, understanding what the customer needs, what they expect, and then meeting them you know, at that expectation, puts you in a position to then say, okay, at this point, I'll ask these questions. At this point, I'll deliver these tools. And by the end, I'll be prepared to deliver on those things. And having that sort of predictable flow ensures that you have a greater degree of success in um, activating new customers.
2: If you do have a high ticket item, do you need to let uh, let the customer know the price immediately first up? It seems to me, you know, not with Rolls Royces, but uh, a lot of things (laughs) that you could get in there and get all the way through the process. And then they realize, well, for here's a great example, laying Mm -hmm. a new concrete driveway. The lady across Mm -hmm. the street wanted a new driveway and was really excited about it and then got a quote. And the lowest quote was like $22,000. And she's like, I didn't want it that bad. You know, at Mm -hmm. six, I was all in, but at 22, I'm not. You know, yeah. how do you handle that? How do we get through those very high ticket situations? Do you just need more
0: touches? (laughs) Yeah. So I think that there needs to be a matter of qualification. First things first, you have the problem that I can solve. Great. Secondly, how would you quantify that problem on a scale of one to 10? How much does it hurt? And then third, what is your budget? You know, how much are you willing to invest to have this solved? Those are the things that you want to understand or have someone self-qualify through either, you know, your content on your website or something like that before they engage with you. Because, you know, if they're telling you, I'm only willing to spend 10,000, but what you sell has a $30,000 minimum requirement, then you spare everyone's time by catching that detail up front and saying, you know, I really appreciate your interest. Uh, We typically work with people at this threshold. And if this is something that you're prepared to invest in, I'm certainly happy to guide you through." next steps, right? That is a very compassionate approach um, to making sure you're not squeezing someone or catching them off guard. Um, But it certainly, you know, puts you in the best position of qualifying someone without having to disclose your rates. If that's something that you need to remain confidential, depending on your line of work or the product or service you provide.
2: And what about consumer versus B2B? Is it the same sales process just with more gatekeepers?
0: That's an excellent question. Um, I think that at the at the core of it, it's always human to human sales. The same concerns that I would have buying a personal product versus buying on behalf of my company is going to be the same. I'm going to have an aversion to risk. I'm going to have an aversion to my money not seeing a return. I will make you know. I'm going to have an aversion to not getting something as advertised. Right. And so understanding that that's just a matter of human psychology, I like to approach B2B sales with that more humanistic compassion of just saying, Hey, like, I understand that you are the global director of this function and you have to oversee these things and you need this by this date. I just want to understand, like, why is this so important to you? Right. If I can connect with what it is that's intrinsically motivating you and the risk that you're trying to avoid, then that helps me in the process. And that's just a matter of me doing my due diligence of slowing down
1: and connecting with the prospect.
2: That's great. I like that. Uh, Recurring product versus a one-time purchase. So you're selling the SaaS model. Now, is that different from selling a one-timer?
0: Yeah, I think that the the it's all a matter of what's expected thereafter, right? If I'm selling you something that is on a recurring payment basis, then you're going to expect ongoing support, which means that operationally I need to be prepared to fulfill. But if it's a one-time transaction because you're purchasing a thing one time, then I'm off the hook from offering long-term support. I might offer a short-term warranty, um, but beyond that, you know, I, the transaction is is sort of done.
2: Yeah. You know, the thing that really gets me about it is that if I'm going to buy a long-term product, know, not only is the, the, you know, the support, the issue, but I feel like there's more of a commitment,
0: Mm.
2: uh, you know, with conversion costs and things like that, you know? Mm. And so I don't know. And another, here's one of my pet peeves that sort of ties into this. I hate getting handed off in the sales process. Why do they do that? <laughs> are you, you know what I'm talking about?
0: I yeah. In work, terms of like well, you, you, you purchase something and then you're introduced and they, yeah.
2: Oh, their job is to set up a meeting with you. And then your job is to set up a meeting with the closer. I wanted to mm-hmm. buy from the first guy, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. If, if you, do you see this or are you totally against what I'm talking about?
0: yeah gosh two sides to that coin because i get that feedback all the time but i also get feedback from people that say i feel like i was squeezed and cornered into a corner to buy this thing and no one took the moment to ask me questions or get to know me or figure out how to personalize this for me and so again this goes back to understanding based on what you're selling and the market that you're serving what the customer expectation is are they expecting something high touch or quick and turnkey And just you have to make sure that you align with the majority of that market. Um, You know, inevitably, you're not going to satisfy every customer's need, but um, you don't need to in order to see massive success. I think that you need to be on the lookout for repeating the right processes and behaviors that ensure customer success.
2: And how long does it take for a new salesperson to adopt a model like this that you would teach them?
0: Gosh, I think that it all depends on you know the environment that they're in and the time that they've got. You know, we can whip someone and turn them around in terms of being you know mediocre or median performer to being a top performer within a month if they have the time to focus on developing those skills exclusively. But if they're training and still working full time, um, that's a matter of you know three to six months until someone is fully ramped up and effective, depending on. the the market that they're serving or the industry that they work in.
2: All right. We only have time for about one more. I think that we want to wrap up on your specialty. How do I integrate uh, diversity, equity, inclusion into a sales life? Uh, My job is to sell salesforce.com. Right? Mm -hmm. How do I personally DEI that career?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I am uh, brought back to an instance in recent history uh, where I was working with a rep at a company um, that was uh, born and raised in Northern California and uh, went to private schooling and all these things for context was connecting with a customer uh, at a small business that was Jamaican and spoke Patois on the line. And this individual, you know, freaked out, didn't know how to respond, never connected with someone, didn't understand fully what the customer was saying. But rather than slowing down and asking the customer to either repeat themselves or um, you know, asking the customer to slow down for a second, they hung up. And they left that person hanging, and that was a really terrible experience for that customer, right? And so that was a moment where we had to step in, coach it up, and and think about, you know, the opportunity for them to serve our customers at a higher degree, but also develop their cultural intelligence. When we think about what it means to lead and succeed we often talk about iq and eq emotional intelligence but then there's a third level of cultural intelligence that we have to commit to developing so that we ensure that every customer gets the good experience that they deserve when they engage with us and it's not only on the rep but it's also a matter of making sure that the leaders are also in a position to support and to guide and to coach those individuals Great advice. I love it. How
2: do we find out more, follow you online and continue to learn to sell better?
0: Yeah. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, And uh, if you want to learn more about my programs and take some of my free courses, you can head on over to learnfromluis.com.
2: And as you continue to evolve in your career, are you less of an introvert than you were 20 years ago when you started?
0: I would say so. I think 20 years ago, I wouldn't be having this conversation as calmly as I am right now and and speaking on podcasts and such. Um, But I certainly feel a greater sense of responsibility Um, having come, you know, from the background that I did and having now the privileges that I've acquired. um, I feel a greater sense of responsibility to share this story and to let other people know what is possible, not only for themselves as individuals, but for their teams and their workplaces to really contribute and thrive at a higher degree.
2: Who pays the best
0: in terms of dollars? (laughs) Um, Gosh, Uh, it's hard to tell because with every move in my career, I've come up in pay. And so inevitably, of course, the the next person will pay better than the last. (laughs) Right.
2: But yeah, I've noticed that you switch jobs every couple of two, three years.
0: But still, you have (laughs) to be
2: able to have a sense of where you're getting the most for that level.
0: You know, I think that if beyond just pay, the best experience that I had was at LinkedIn. The culture is bar none. The investment in their leaders and their people is really unprecedented. I haven't had that experience again. And it's also a company where, you know, the more you contribute and the longer you stay, the more you earn. And so, you know, I, I really appreciate the way they take care of their people.
2: And what about Uber from the television that I watch and everything I watch on television is true? It seems like that was a, a company run by a real jerk.
0: Yeah, did I did not enjoy it very well. Yeah, I did not enjoy that pit stop in my career. Um, and, and I walked away from that opportunity when I saw the way that the women were being treated on the sales floor and the way that people of color were sort of being uh, demeaned. And so um, it's an experience that I'm thankful that I have because it set the bar for things that I would never put up with again.
2: Uh, So the TV is true again. (laughs) (laughs) Luis Beas, thank you so much for being with us. Great information and amazing career. Congratulations.
0: Thank you very much. And thank you for having me today.
2: And website, L-U-I-S-B-A-E-Z.com. Thank you for being here. You were great. We are out of time, but yes, back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Bye now.